Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So, listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please support the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the ancient world. And remember to like the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash ancient world podcast. Thanks again for listening. The Syrian rebels weren't the only ones vibing on the historical resonance. As historian Mordecai Kogan notes, the legend of Karkar was very much on the minds of the scribes of Sargon II, and therefore likely of the king himself, when they wrote the account of the battle, or at least of its aftermath. And there was a fair amount of consistency between the two rebel coalitions. In both 853 and 720 BC, the largest contingents likely hailed from Hamath, Damascus, and the former territories of Israel. The 853 battle took place in the wake of Shalmaneser's conquest of northern Syria, so few northern kingdoms were able to take part. 720 differed in including the forces of both Arpad and Patan. It's also worth noting that in 853, the coalition included 500 soldiers from Quay. This time, our friend Awariku of Quay was a loyal Assyrian vassal, either fighting in the ranks of Sargon's forces or instructed to wait on the sidelines. Both conflicts included forces from Phoenicia, in particular Arwad, though Tyre was absent from both. In 853, out of excess caution, in 720 because it was still under siege. Both also included Arab contingents. While the Philistines sat out 853, the current coalition included the forces of both Iamani of Ashdod and Hanno of Gaza. And rounding things out was a very interesting entry, an army dispatched from Cushite Egypt. Egypt, or Misri, is sometimes credited for involvement in 853, but as I mentioned at the time, that was more likely a reference to Masura near Quay. This time is much more straightforward. Sargon's annals record not only a Turtanu, or general, of Egyptian forces named Sibe, but also an Egyptian ruler named Piru 
likely a reference to Pharaoh, a.k.a. P.A. or Pianchi of Cush. The presence of an Egyptian army at a battlefield in Syria suggests re-engagement and a play for influence in their former Levantine holdings. Some historians even credit Egypt with fomenting the whole rebellion. And, by the way, I like to use foment whenever I can, since it really only works with rebellions. Big power involvement was all the more reason for Sargon to take this one seriously. Not only was this battle of Karkar make it or break it for the king himself, and possibly for his whole frickin' empire, but a loss had mean forfeiting a century and a half of Assyrian regional dominance. Luckily, Sirius just happened to be Sargon's middle name. Okay, everyone got their game faces on? Then let's dive into Second Karkar, or at least into Sargon's account. The king recorded that Yaubidi from Hamath, a commoner without claim to the throne, a cursed Hittite, schemed to become king of Hamath, induced the cities Arwad, Samira, Damascus, and Samaria to desert me, made them collaborate, and fitted out an army. I called up the masses of the soldiers of Assur and besieged him and his warriors in Karkar, his favorite city. And if you're like me, here's where you're hoping for the nitty-gritty details of the back and forth with this huge, evocative Syrian coalition. But Sargon pretty much cuts to the chase. I conquered and burnt the city of Karkar. Yaubidi, I flayed alive. So, light on details, but I think we all get the gist. Kogan adds that in the battle's aftermath, Hamath was converted into an Assyrian province and placed under control of a eunuch governor, following a practice that had become standard under Tiglath-Pileser III. In addition, fighting units from Hamath, composed of those who had survived the battle, were enlisted into Sargon's royal guard. Sargon describes them as a contingent of 200 chariots and 600 men on horseback, which is a bit of a new and interesting spin. Also, as I mentioned last episode, sometime shortly after this victory, Sargon deported all those who'd opposed his coup, some 6,300 Assyrian nobles, and resettled them in Hamath. From there, Sargon continues that, I then besieged and conquered Samaria, and led away as booty 27,290 inhabitants of it. I formed from among them a contingent of 50 chariots for my royal corps and made the remaining inhabitants assume their social positions. I installed over them an officer of mine as governor and imposed upon them the tribute of the former king. This conquest is why Sargon sometimes gets credit for the ultimate destruction of Israel. But really, Shalmaneser's three-year siege did most of the heavy lifting. Sargon's next stop was Philistia where he records that Hanno, king of Gaza, and also Sibe, the Turtanu of Egypt, set out from Raphia against me to deliver a decisive battle. I defeated them, 
Sibay ran away, afraid when he heard the noise of my approaching army, and has not been seen again. Hanno I captured personally. I received the tribute from Piru of Egypt, from Samsi, Queen of Arabia, and Itamar, the Sabaean. Gold in dust form, horses and camels. It's worth noting, aspersions aside, that this is the first documented battle between Egypt and Assyria, unless they did literally run away at the first hint of enemy contact. And unless you count first Karkar, I guess, which, again, I do not. There's also the interesting Arab queen aspect, which I'll cover in a Patreon mini-episode. Sticking with Philistia, a couple episodes back, I mentioned that Tiglath-Pileser campaigned in the region in 734 BC. At the time, Kogan highlights that In order to regulate and secure Assyria's economic interests, Tiglath-Pileser established an Assyrian customs house in Gaza. A royal stele was erected at the Wadi of Egypt, marking the border between Egypt and Assyria's new commercial zone. At the time, there had been no Egyptian response to the Assyrian domination of Gaza. Cut to 720 B.C., and the aforementioned Hanno of Gaza was openly soliciting military aid from the Cushion pharaoh Pianchi. And not only did the pharaoh send forces to Gaza, but also to Philistine Gibbethon, which we know from Sargon's palace reliefs. Kogan relates that Sargon's ensuing victory over combined Philistine and Egyptian forces allowed him to reassert Assyrian interests in the area. In an inscription, the king recorded that I opened the sealed port of Egypt and let the people of Assyria and Egypt mingle together and had them trade with each other. Which at least sounds a bit more flexible than Tiglath-Pileser's policy. Just up the road in Philistine Ashdod, Sargon recorded previously deposing a rebellious king named Azuri and replacing him with his younger brother, Ahimiti. But the people of Ashdod had overthrown Ahimiti and elevated to rule over them a Greek named Iamani, who was without any claim to the throne and had no respect for authority. Sargon records that In a sudden rage, I did not wait to assemble the full might of my army or to prepare the equipment needed to make camp, but started out toward Ashdod with only those warriors who, even in friendly regions, never leave my side. He continues that Iamani of Ashdod, afraid of my weapons, left his wife and children and fled to the frontier of Egypt and hid there like a thief. I installed an officer of mine as governor over his entire large country and its prosperous inhabitants, thus again aggrandizing the territory belonging to Assur, the king of the gods. The terror-inspiring glamour of Assur, my lord, overpowered the king of Egypt, and he threw Iamani in fetters on hands and feet and sent him to me in Assyria likely a peace gesture by the chastised pharaoh, who was probably also grateful for the resumption of trade. 
Some of you may have noticed that we jumped right down from Samaria, Israel, to the Philistine cities without any stop-off in Judah, which may mean that there was no conflict there, i.e. Judah remained loyal. Or it may mean that Judah's part in the Syrian rebellion is only referred to tangentially. We know that Hezekiah succeeded his father Ahaz in 727 BC, and had likely remained a tributary under Shalmaneser V. But his role under Sargon II is less well defined. As Kogan notes, there is no direct reference to Hezekiah or the kingdom of Judah in any of the texts concerning the events of 720. But in a short inscription from 716, Sargon called himself subduer of the land of Judah, whose place is far off. Kogan argues that the revolt of 720 BC, with Judah surrounded on all sides by Assyrian subjects in rebellion, was the perfect setting for Hezekiah to go back on his vassal obligations. And, if so, to be forced right back into vassalage. I assume that everyone's getting the gist, but yeah, the rebels defeated, the West subdued, and the Neo-Assyrian Empire saved. Yay, I mean, I guess. As Sargon sums up, the rebels I killed in their cities and established again peace and harmony. Because y'all know that our friend Sargon is all about the peace. We don't have any details about Arpad or Patton, except for the erection of boundary stones, which, in Patton's case, implies they'd been part of the rebellion. But both were clearly reprovincialized. Historian Trevor Bryce quotes a biblical passage where the later king Sennacherib's Rob Shakay taunts besieged Jerusalemites by asking them, Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Has the god of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Which might refer to the reconquest of Arpad by Sennacherib's father, Sargon II. Tyre is a bit of an interesting mystery. According to Kogan, the rebellion in Tyre likely continued into the first years of the reign of Sargon. But how and when Matan II made peace with Sargon is not reported. Working relations between Tyre and Assyria must have been restored by 715, because in that year, Sargon claims that he brought relief to Tyre and Quay from the sea-marauding Ionians. After which, as far as we know, there was no more trouble with Tyre. The following year, 719, Sargon turned his attention to the lands of the Upper Euphrates. There's no record of either Pisiri of Carchemish or Muatali of Kuma joining the rebellion. But the kingdom of Malachia was another story. After siding with Urartu back in 743, the kingdom had remained an Assyrian vassal through the rest of Tiglath-Pileser's and likely Shalmaneser's reign. But in 720, their current king, Gunzianu, had joined the Syrian revolt. In 719, Sargon II gave him the boot 
Egyptian elevated a figure named Tarhunazi. The next year, 718, Sargon was forced to deal with events in central Anatolia. At roughly the same time as Sargon's coup, around 722 BC, King Gordius of Phrygia had passed away and been succeeded by his son, King Meti, better known to us as King Midas. King, of course, being the conventional title. According to Bryce, an inscription found at a Phrygian stronghold refers to Midas as Lavagetes and Vanax, or Wanax, which, interestingly, recall the similarly titled highest-ranking officials in the former Mycenaean world. One of Midas's first acts as Wanax was commissioning a tomb for his father. As Bryce notes, Gordian's burial grounds located outside the city walls, eventually held approximately 140 Phrygian graves. These were typically wooden, flat-roofed chambers built into rectangular pits sunk into the ground, then covered with mounds, or tumuli, of rocks and earth. The largest of the tombs is still 53 meters high, even after erosion and almost 300 meters in diameter. When discovered, it was equipped with a wide range of funerary gifts, including wooden furniture, bronze cauldrons, and studded leather belts. The body of the deceased, a man in his 60s, was found in situ laid out on a bier. Dating of the juniper logs in the tomb suggests a date of roughly 740 BC, or just before Midas's reign began. This makes it likely that the tomb and the body found within it is that of Midas's father, King Gordius. As I previewed earlier, Midas would leverage his father's groundwork as a springboard for Phrygian expansion to both the west and the east. The lands along Phrygia's western frontiers were held by Archaic-era Greeks, which is a useful term for Greeks living sometime between the fall of Mycenae and the coming Classical era. As we mentioned a few episodes back, the Greeks of northwestern Anatolia were organized into two main groups. The Aeolians of the Troad, now known as Aeolus, and, just to their south, the twelve Greek cities of the Pan-Ionium, also known as the Ionian League, under the leadership of Miletus. Midas used violence sparingly, if at all, in his push toward the Aegean coast. Instead, like the later king Croesus of Lydia, he relied more on intimidation and lavish bribes to extend his kingdom's influence. Which brings me to a fat digression I've just decided to make, so please find a comfortable chair. So, I discussed way back in episode C2 and C4 that any historical basis for the Trojan War likely stems from an early 13th century conflict between Muatali II and Piyama Radu combined with an early 12th-century sea people's raid on Walusa. 
Over the centuries that followed, a whole cycle of stories based on a half-remembered amalgam of these events were circulated orally in both Ionia and the Greek mainland by poets. Until sometime around the time of our story, the late 8th century BC, a figure named Homer distilled some events from this Trojan war cycle into a super-obscure work called the Iliad. Yeah, I know, you've probably never heard of it. And yes, I'm aware, there was no Homer, blah blah blah, but it's also kind of possible there was. Either way, it doesn't really affect my point. Which is that, for some reason, the Phrygians were given a role in the Iliad as Trojan allies, even though they totally weren't even a thing until right about now. The Greeks also developed a later legend about King Midas, especially his love for gold, with everything he touched turning into it. In another Greek legend, Midas was punished for his decision to favor Pan over Apollo in a musical contest by being endowed with a pair of donkey ears. Bryce suggests that some aspects of the real Midas's character may lie behind the figure of legend. A wealthy foreign ruler who bought his way into Greek culture may have led to his Greek portrayal as a barbarian king obsessed with gold and with horribly questionable judgment. The later Lydian king Croesus was assigned a similar reputation. So, just to bring it all home, Bryce proposes that, since Midas was quite possibly a contemporary of Homer, or whoever really wrote down the Iliad, the Phrygians may have owed their anachronistic presence in the work to some sort of financial patronage bestowed on the poet by Phrygia's king. So, you know, put that in your marsh reed and smoke it. In the East, Bryce relates that under Midas, Phrygian power extended eastwards across the Hollis River into what had been the heartland of the old Hittite kingdom. A Phrygian settlement was established on the site of Hattusas, indicated by the architecture and ceramic ware of the period and by the establishment in the city of the cult of the Phrygian mother goddess Sibylle. Other former Hittite settlements that the Phrygians occupied within the Hollis Basin included Gavur Kalesi, Tapika, and the sacred city of Urina. None of these became major Phrygian settlements, but they marked the progressive expansion of Phrygian power eastwards, right up to the northwestern borders of the kingdoms of Tabal which, for Assyria and their vassal of Quay, was really the heart of the problem. As Bryce lays out, from Sargon's point of view, control of Tabal was of great strategic importance, since it provided a buffer between his subject territories further east and the territorial ambitions of an expanding Phrygian empire. From the Phrygian point of view, control of Tabal was equally important, to counter the fear of an ever-westward expansion of an ambitious Assyrian king. Squeezed in the middle were the kings of Tabal, 
who found themselves in the predicament of having to decide which power it was in their best interest to support, then faced the consequences of whatever decision they made. As I mentioned last episode, Tabal was split into five main kingdoms. Tabal proper, Atuna, Hupishna, Shinutu, and Tuwana, with Tuwana basically bordering on Quay. And again, I've posted a brand new map to help keep things straight. As you can see from the map, Atuna and Shinutu were the westernmost Tabalian kingdoms, and therefore under the greatest pressure. And it's likely via contacts with neighboring Tuwana that our friend Awariku of Quay got the news that Kayakaya of Shinutu had broken down and thrown in his lot with King Midas. Awariku also learned from Assyrian sources that Sargon was paying attention. As the king records, in my fourth regnal year, Kayakaya of the city Shinutu disregarded the treaty sworn by the great gods and became dilatory about delivering his tribute. I raised my hand to the gods, my lords, overwhelmed his royal city Shinutu like a fog, and counted him as booty, together with his fighting men, his wife, his sons, his daughters, his property and possessions, the treasure of his palace, along with 7,350 people of his land. The neighboring kingdom of Atuna, who'd stayed loyal, reaped the immediate benefit. I gave Kayakaya's royal city of Shinutu to Kurti of the land Atuna. But Sargon noted that Kurti was also made responsible for Shinutu's portion of the tribute. While he was in the area, Sargon took one additional action. About seven years earlier, Shalmaneser V had deposed King Huli of Tabal proper. Well, he'd somehow avoided being flayed alive, because in 718, Sargon II put Huli right back on his throne, with his son Ambaris installed as crown prince. Sargon may have felt that, after seven years spent in Assyria, the father had been sufficiently chastised, and the son sufficiently Assyrianized, that the move could serve to increase stability particularly in the face of ongoing Phrygian expansion. To sweeten the pot, Sargon also annexed the coastal, pirate-infested territory of Halaku and passed it along to Huli as a gift, which also, incidentally, made life easier for Halaku's neighbor of Quay. And, you know, I'm sure our friend Awariku of Quay got a super nice letter from King Midas of Phrygia full of lofty praise, some barely concealed threats, and a substantial monetary inducement. But Awariku had been loyal since he'd first come to power under Tiglath-Pileser III. And now that Sargon was proving his mettle, he saw little reason for change. The equally long-reigning Tarhulara of Gurgum likely had similar thoughts as did the hyper-loyal Bar-Rakib of Samal. In Malachia, Sargon had just installed the new king, Tarhunazi. 
And just downriver, the extremely faithful Kushtashpi of Kumud, been succeeded by his equally faithful son, Muatali. And then, with a very audible sigh, we make our way to the next kingdom along the Euphrates. Our old, reliable, series named after city of Carchemish. Before we get to the matter at hand, let's have ourselves a little verbal montage and cue up the mental slideshow. We started things off in episode C1 way back in 1327 BC, when, in the words I used at the time, Carchemish may have been the last Mitanni holdout west of the Euphrates, at least until Supaluliuma rolled down and captured the city for the Hittites. His son, Piasili, was then made viceroy, founding a line of Hittite great kings that endured right down through the Bronze Age collapse and into the early Iron Age. In the early 10th century, in a transition that's still poorly understood, this original line was gradually eclipsed by a new dynasty of country lords, beginning with Suhi I. It was the later members of the second line, most notably Sangara, who fought in the early Syrian alliances against Shalmaneser III. After Sangara, there was nearly a century of silence before a new dynasty came on the scene, one overseen by the regent Yariri, whom we met in episode C24. Then came Yariri's charge, Kamani, the guy who bought a local fixer-upper city and named it after himself, followed, again via cryptic transition, by the current ruler, Pisiri, the son of a former royal vizier named Sastura. Bryce flags that, in an inscription regarding his royal accession, Pisiri thanks the city goddess Kubaba for causing to embrace me those who were not dear to me which is a pretty clear code for a disputed transition. Which kind of sort of brings us up to date. These Neo-Hittite kingdoms grow up so fast nowadays. I mean, really, blink and you'll miss it. In continuity with his royal predecessors since the days of Suhi I, Pisiri titled himself both hero and country lord. We also know that Pasiri gave tribute to Tiglath-Pileser in 738 BC. But that was already two decades past. And, well, in 717, Sargon received some fairly compromising intelligence. As the king recorded, in my fifth regnal year, Pasiri of the city Carchemish sinned against the treaty sworn by the great gods and repeatedly sent messages hostile to Assyria to Midas, king of the land Mushku. He held me in contempt. Whatever the nature of the correspondence, it was apparently enough to charge, try, and convict Pasiri, at least inside Sargon's head. In response, the king records that I threw Pasiri, together with his family, in iron fetters. I opened his palace, his treasure house. I carried off his booty ten talents of refined gold and twenty-one hundred talents of silver. 
along with arhu copper, tin, iron, elephant hides, elephant ivory, and battle gear. He also records that he took the guilty people among the city Carchemish, who had sided with Pasiri, along with their possessions, and brought them to Assyria. I conscripted fifty chariots, two hundred cavalry, and three thousand foot soldiers from among them, and added them to my royal military contingent. I settled Assyrians in the city Carchemish, and imposed the yoke of the god Assur, my lord, among them. So, a few things. First, though Carchemish had been extorted plenty of times, it had never ever been captured and plundered by an enemy, which is why the level of booty recorded is fairly astronomical. Which brings me to point number two. I seriously, seriously doubt that Pasiri would have ever written to King Midas. He certainly got letters from King Midas, But, I mean, look at Carchemish. Deep inside Syria, encircled by Assyrian provinces and loyal vassal kingdoms, why would Pasiri risk anything remotely resembling a potential alliance with Phrygia? To my mind, he absolutely, totally would not. Which brings me to point number three. Maybe even more than Ashur-Nasser-Pal II, Sargon really, really, really wanted to build himself a bright, spanking new showpiece capital. Except, instead of calling it Kalhu, he wanted to call his, oh, I don't know, just spitballing here, maybe the Fortress of Sargon? But coming up with the funding may have been tough in the wake of his recent coup. So I think he ginned up a flat-out lie and dared anyone to call him on it. Regardless of its justification, it's undisputed that the conquest of Carchemish was directly responsible for funding the construction of Dur-Sharukin, on which work began, coincidentally, in the same year Carchemish was taken. According to historian Niccolo Marchetti, Over the next decade, Sargon adapted the royal palace, originally built by the country lord Katua, to make it his own. A baked brick from the revamped structure marked it as the Palace of Sargon, king of the world, king of Assyria. The courtyard was repaved in a new design, and the internal stone palace reliefs were removed or covered. Which is ironic, since... A century and a half earlier, those same reliefs had inspired Asher Nasser Paul to adopt the approach at Kalhu, which became the template for all Assyrian stone palace reliefs right down through the end of the empire. A recent article by Marzia Kavariani and colleagues highlights Sargon's installation of botanical gardens at Carchemish as well as the on-site performance of ritual ceremonies usually reserved for the capital. They argue that, to all appearances, Sargon aimed at making Carchemish a sort of western capital of Assyria, from which to control and administer the western territories of the empire. In the same way that his new capital of Dur-Sharukin was meant to supplant Kalhu, Carchemish was meant to do the same to Kar Shalmaneser. <laughs>
though as the fates would unfold, neither would end up being the case. Before we bid farewell to Carchemish, I wanted to highlight two more items. First, after the conquest of their empire in 605, Assyrian remnants regrouped in Carchemish, tried to enlist the aid of Egypt, and made their last stand against the Medes. So Carchemish is also technically the spot where the Assyrian Empire died. After which, the site lay untouched for the next few millennia, until, in the early 1900s, it was excavated by a team that included both Leonard Woolley, the future excavator of Ur, and T.E. Lawrence, the future Lawrence of Arabia. There's an amazing picture of the two of them flanking a Neo-Hittite slab. I'll post it for you. So, full disclosure, I originally planned to wrap the series with the fall of Hittite Carchemish, since I started things off with the Hittite conquest of Carchemish. But along the way, I decided that there's a bit more story I wanted to tell and also a little something new I wanted to try with the final episode. So, lucky for you, you get two more full episodes. Next time, it's back to the kingdom of Urartu, to look at developments since Tiglath-Pileser's last campaign, and pave the way for Sargon II's most famous accomplishment. The Assyrian conquest of Musasir, stronghold of the Urartian god Haldi next time on The Ancient World. The Ancient World podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.